Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 128, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, we did want to have Joe on the show this week, but unfortunately, he's, uh, he's bed-bound at home. How rock and roll. He, he, <laughs> he broke his leg. Or what? Broke both his ankles. Both his ankles, dancing in the garden at a barbecue. <laughs> this is uh, Joe, you know, the heavy metal dude. Yeah, who's often part of our crew. He didn't want he didn't want us to say exactly how he did it. He said to me, can you just say like I was stage diving from, uh, you know, a, a massive metal gig or something? But yeah, he was drunk at his birthday barbecue and uh, yeah, broke his ankle. So get well soon, Joe, if Poor you are dude, listening. Yeah, we did want to have yeah. him on this week, but you know, I don't even think he can muster up the energy to go to the phone, I don't think. Oh, bless God. Him. So hopefully he'll be, get well soon, Joe. We'll see him at Play Expo in uh, August at London I'm sure it'll be better by then yeah uh, no crutches yeah I was going to say or maybe a mobility scooter might yeah. get him on, so. of course it is the summer's almost here Play Expo is coming up at the end of August gearing up for a big one I mean you were at Play Expo in Glasgow um, a couple of weeks ago you've had a demo party recently throughout last weekend uh, and yeah, you survived it's, it's just non-stop at the moment you know it's absolutely crazy when it gets to the summer with these retro events it's just mad yeah but I mean there have been a lot of people getting in touch saying that they are going to be coming out to uh, see us at Play in uh, London and also we're going to be back at um, Blackpool not October as well as another one coming up so if you want to keep up to date with that where the show is going to be on the road if you want to come and check out the Retro Hour live we keep our calendar up to date at theretrohour.com and that's also the place that you can get in touch with us as well now we do have obviously various ways to get in touch with the show uh, you can do it on Facebook you know we've got an inbox on there that we check every day uh, we're on Twitter at Retro Hour UK or you can do it the good old fashioned way email show at theretrohour.com now, we haven't done this for a while, but I checked the inbox. There's a few little letters that have come in. I mean, we haven't really pushed it for a while, so I'm not surprised there hasn't been many. But if you would like to get in touch, um, maybe you've got events coming up yourself. Maybe you want to share something cool with us, a cool bit of news. Maybe suggestions on people we should get on the show. They're always appreciated. Uh, drop us an email, and uh, we'll hopefully give you mention on a future episode. Now, today, I want to say a big hello to Kel. Uh, he just got in touch to basically tell us about um, the fact that he loves retro, and he's keeping the retro scene alive down in Brighton. Now, he organises a monthly pizza-themed games evening. Oh, that sounds good. With a group of his mates. They play retro consoles. Um, they also have a late 90s-style LAN party as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> I used to love them. Do you remember, like, carrying massive CRT monitors to yeah. your mates? As and you definitely need pizza and Coca-Cola for that. And this year, he's also doing a retro gaming weekend with everybody. Um, they've also managed to find a church on Airbnb, where they're going to have everything set up, consoles and PCs. He's got this brutal tournament with big prize bundles, an original PlayStation 1, Steam Links, a fully loaded RetroPie and a NES case as well. So he's going to do that in the summer, having a massive party in Brighton in a church. He hasn't given us any event details, but if we're going to get back in touch, Cal, uh, we'll share that on our social media, because that sounds massive. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean, if we can find a spare weekend, that might be one to go to. I think yeah. I'd love that. Uh, also, Stephen Ball, now he's been in touch as well. Stephen also goes by the name of DJ Megatron. Now, he loves chip music. I think you and him have been having a bit of a chat about uh, chip music. I'm yeah, because he, he works on a local radio station, right? Yeah, well, his name is inspired by the Mega Drive. He's a big Sega fanboy. And he does a geek news radio show on a community radio station called Radio Maghull. 
He covers retro gaming news on there and apparently regularly listens to the Retro Hour podcast in his studio for a bit of inspiration. So. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to check him out. Good that's to see that we're filtering out onto other stations and stuff. That's all good, isn't it? If yeah. you want, want to get us on, just give us a shout one day. I'm sure we can do that. At magholeradio.co.uk. And finally, Andy Trinkelbeck. Uh, he shared a picture of his retro loft. I, I didn't print them out this week, but look, no, look, let's over. See this. look, look at that. I'm going to look at monitor. That's Andy's loft. It's a loft that I want to be in. <laughs> <laughs> it looks better than my living room. He's got an Amiga 500, an Amiga 1200 with a Blizzard 1260 accelerator card. A G5 Tower as well, yeah, I see G5 there. Tower a there. couple of BBCs. Yeah, BBC Micros in here, Acorn Archimedes, Amstrad CPC, an Amiga 4000 with a Voodoo 3, a graphics card in there, load of Acorn machines, an Atari Falcon. Oh, God. He's got in there, too. Uh, a Raspberry Pi, an MT32 for some MIDI fun as well. Oh, that's so, awesome. I love the MT32. Yeah, yeah, you've been getting into MIDI again recently, haven't oh, you? Oh, I love MIDI, yeah. I would never leave that attic. Well, my next <laughs> my next thing is, uh, you know, I've been DJing with mods. Yeah. I want to get a bit of MIDI in there as well, you know, Monkey Island MIDI version and stuff. I was looking on eBay, actually, because... Um, do you remember LGR did a video, didn't he, about... Probably about six months ago, um, all about MIDI on a PC, and he was doing yeah. stuff like the LucasArts games and With that. With the uh, MT32 as yeah, well, the yeah. pricey now on eBay, though. I'm not sure whether it's because of his video, but they were a few hundred quid when I looked. Oh, they've always been expensive, yeah. those units. It would be good, but I'm not sure how many games I've got that would support it. Is it more a PC thing, I think? It's it? more a PC. Yeah. There's about four Amiga titles that right. do it. But, yeah, <laughs> I think... Um, Modern Vintage Gamers done a video on that one. Okay, cool. Yeah, so check that out. Yeah, so we'll put all those there. If you want to check those videos, wherever you'll find the links, we'll put them at the show notes at theretrohour.com. Speaking of amazing YouTubers as well now, uh, we've got a group of guys on as uh, this week's special guest. One of the biggest retro gaming channels on YouTube, Did You Know Gaming? Yeah, they've got over 2 million subs and they're fantastic. They do kind of... It's video game trivia, essentially, yeah. isn't it? It's like... Did you know about this game? And the thing is, the facts that they come up with, absolutely insane. So we're going to talk about their personal passion for games, but also how they do their research and stuff. But it's a really good, fun conversation, this one. Is, and, you're gonna, and you're going to find out some trivia that you probably didn't know about old games and systems. It's quite and I mean, obscure systems as well. Absolutely. I mean, I, I watched a few of their videos recently, you know, while, while researching for the show. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that. You know, yeah. I love videos that make you do that because you think you know everything about a game or a system that's been out 20, 30 years. But when you find out a new bit of information that wasn't widely known, that's always really cool, I think. That's it. You know, I think we've reached this point with the show that we're now learning every single time we're on it, you know. <laughs> but we still come last in every retro video game yeah. quiz we go on, Ravi, so we're not quite there yet, yeah, are we? No. <laughs> but maybe you'd like to share I your blame the beer. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, probably got something to do with it. Uh, but of course, if you'd like to join in any of the conversations, maybe you've got some facts and stuff you'd like to tell us about. We're hanging out on Discord quite a lot these days, too. Yeah, Discord's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. We're getting a lot of show suggestions and uh, guests suggestions on there so please join our discord and uh, have a chat in there it's, it's really good fun now before we get to um, the guys from did you know gaming we just want to give a massive shout to definitely our favorite people in the world the people that keep the retro hour podcast coming week in week out allows to bring you this podcast every week allows to get amazing guests allows to host events and that's people who make a donation into the running of the podcast now we accept donations big or small every penny that we get into the running of the show really helps and of course 100 percent of what we get does go back into the running of the podcast and it's so easy to do it as well all you've got to do is go to our website theretrohour.com there's a little paypal link in the side there fill your email address in any currency 
Yeah, it'll, it'll translate it all. Uh, you're into cryptocurrencies on there as well, if you yep. do, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all of that. And uh, just for making a donation, big or small, you'll find your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. By far the best accolade in the world of retro gaming. And I'd just like to mention, thank you for some of the Bitcoin donations recently. We don't know who they're from because Bitcoin's yeah. anonymous, <laughs> but thank you whoever you are. And it's back on the up again, Bitcoin now, so isn't well, it? Well, yeah. <laughs> a big crash a couple of weeks ago. It can only get better. Uh, so this week, uh, the people we do know who definitely donated into the Retro Hour podcast Thank you for your support, John Cook, Colin Purvis, Ron Van Sherp, and Christopher Baker. Thank you so much for your donations, guys. It really does help us a lot, and you can do the same by heading to our website, theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our interview this week with the guys from Did You Know Gaming, I never thought I'd see this. A silicon graphics handheld. Now, Dan, I thought you would absolutely love this. So, silicon graphics, all of you guys will remember that old school demos that they used to have. And this was before the N64 and all of this. These were the most powerful machines you could get the silicon graphics. Well, let's ones. put it into perspective. Silicon graphics were used for the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Yeah. You know, you, you go back to the early 90s, they were the workstations to have. And I remember there was a demo on that influence. And Andy Crane, when we had him on a couple of episodes ago, he did talk about this machine. He'd forgotten what it was called. About this machine that was the size of a photocopier. That's it. It was yeah. absolutely huge, wasn't yeah, it? That was a Silicon Graphics workstation. And even today, I drool over those. I never thought I'd see a handheld Silicon Graphics workstation. No, though. because of the sheer size of it. Yeah. Now, this is called the Alice Alice 4, actually. Yeah. And it was at the uh, Maker Fair in the Bay Area. In America. Yep. Now, this is really cool. It's an FPGA, and it's been built from the ground up to run these demos in real time. So it's a field programmable gate array. It basically recreates a silicon graphics machine, like, on chip. Yeah, you know? that costs $99. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, how much did they cost back in the day? I think they were about... 16000 or something I think crazy. they were more than that. I think yeah. they were a quarter of a million, I think, some of the high-end ones. But now... What's really cool is, this is in a little white box with a red button on the front. And the red button, you just press and play the demos. That's all it's designed to do. <laughs> and it's open source as well, so maybe people are going to add extra items to this and kind of get it a bit bigger. But, you know, the fact that you can just, like, whip out this little box and be like, do you want to see some silicon graphics from the 80s? <laughs> and then... That's insane. Well, you know, the good thing about this is, as well, the guys behind it, uh, Brad, Lawrence, Mike and Chris, actually used to work at SGI back in the day. So you think if anyone knows the hardware and how to kind of recreate it, it'd be these guys. That's just awesome, though. I love nerdy stuff like that. Yeah, totally. And you know they're saying they found uh, the demo code on a, in a ratty old FTP server. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they basically took it off and then kind of started to chuck it into this FPGA, which is really cool to see that period of computers kind of just captured in the little box. Well, the thing about it is, I mean, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure someone will correct me um, if so, but I don't know if there is an SGI emulator that you can get for a PC. Uh, because I've been doing a lot of video recently, kind of, it's taken me a bit, a bit longer than I thought, but about the N64 and its kind of history and stuff and kind of exploring it a bit. Um, and I found a few YouTube videos of kind of early N64 demos that ran on the reality engine that was like a graphics... Was that like the dolphin stuff? Or, yeah, or, yeah. the sharks that were swimming, um, and there was kind of a, a flyover one as well. Yeah. And they ran, it was a thing called the reality engine that was a big kind of graphics card that you plugged into a Silicon Graphics workstation, um, give it a lot of 3D uh, you know, power to run graphics. But there was a couple of like really low-resolution videos that I found on YouTube of people actually showing these demos, but... 
they've even uploaded them so people can download. But it was like, well, how do I run this? You actually well, need well, one of the machines. Well, this is the thing, you know, you're gonna you're gonna be able to see it in the full kind of graphical output as well. So maybe there'll be high quality captures of it now as well. But even if you look on eBay. Getting an original Silicon Graphics workstation, they, they still cost a fortune. It delivered on a forklift truck. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is some smaller ones. There was one called the Indie. Don't you remember that? A bit like a pizza box. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, it's like light green. That looks really cool. I mean, one thing about the SGI machines is, especially when they got into like the, the mid-90s to the early 2000s, they looked so funky. Yeah, they did. Yeah, weird, like, kind of bubble shapes and you, all that You wanted well. one on your desk, do you? Yeah, well, I still do to this day. But I've kind of been looking at, like, kind of workstation computers recently. Because we had Retro Man Cave on, and he uh, got a Nextcube, didn't he? Yeah. And he's talking about that. And recently, I've had a bit of a craving for, like... Because I've got a Sun workstation that, you know, has got Solaris on there. And I, I know nothing about Unix, but I managed to get it up and running. But now I'm thinking, I wouldn't mind a, a Silicon Graphics workstation, you know, render Jurassic Park in my bedroom. So. Uh, <laughs> so if you don't see me for six months, that's what I'm doing. But maybe I can do it on an FPGA for a yeah. quid now. So if you want to find out more about that, I mean, look, it's deliciously geeky. I'll put a link to that in the show notes at theretrohour.com. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were talk- talking about Sonic the Hedgehog toaster. Yeah. Um, that Sega are crowdfunding at the moment. Maybe a toaster's not enough. After you've had your toast, you want to run to work, you need some shoes to get you there. Oh, there you go. You've got to run fast. Got to go fast. Well, Puma, who are a name I've probably not heard for about 20 years anyway, Puma trainers were cool back in the day, weren't they? Well, I don't know. It was, it was good with some people and some people would diss it, in, in my circles at least. I remember at my school, I think, it was obviously Nike and Reebok. Like the big ones. I'd Reebok pumps, I remember, that like the coolest thing ever. I got them on my 10th birthday. You know, actually, right. like, wait, guys, I've just got to pump up my shoes. <laughs> yeah, when the bigger lads were chasing you, wait yeah. a minute. <laughs> um, but Puma, I mean, it, it's a name that I think if you wore Puma trainers at school, you're all right. It wasn't, yeah, quite, yeah, it wasn't yeah. Gola. You yeah, didn't get no, beaten no. up for wearing them. Uh, but now Puma, who are still around, have teamed up with Sonic to create Sonic the Hedgehog trainers. Now, for our American listeners, sneakers. Yeah, and this just shows that Sega are really pushing it at the moment. We've been talking nearly every single week about how Sega's bringing out something new, how they're trying to hit new marketing areas. You know, they had that Primark launch as well recently, which was, you know, all kind of computer game fashion. I think we're going to be seeing people walking around in PlayStation, Sonic stuff and N64 t-shirts for a a long time, and it'll mostly be dads. (laughs) Well, the thing is... if you miss the episode, I think it wasn't last week, week before we were talking about the toaster, and we read out Sonic's description on their website that was like way over the top, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it does seem like they're doing it tongue-in-cheek now. So do you want to hear the description for these uh, new Sonic the Hedgehog trainers then? So okay. They're inspired by Sonic's strive to be forever faster. Puma and Sega have teamed up to create... Puma X Sega RS0 Sonic Trainers, inspired by the Sonic universe. They put a lot of effort into making these, citing that the upper textured suede represents Sonic's fur, while the checkered outsole is inspired by the roads that Sonic runs on. You know, trainers are a pretty serious thing, so maybe there'll be some trainer geeks reviewing these on YouTube and stuff like that. I actually watch a few on YouTube. There's Addy Sneaker Freak. Have you seen him before? Well, I'll tell you the weird thing is that Retrobrite that's been used on all the consoles to remove yellowing is also used by trainer restorers on YouTube. Okay. So they have a whole section of Retrobyte videos, and I started to get into them because I was like watching Retrobyte, and they came up with my similar suggestions. So there is some weird 
connection with uh, retro computers and old school trainers. And people do collect trainers like games. Yeah. You know, yeah. there are guys that have got like, you know, 80s trainers like in cupboards on display and all that. So, yeah, I guess it, there is quite some crossover there. But I'm loving the fact that there's been so much like Sega merchandise coming out. In a couple of years, we've got like Sega, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog curtains in your bedroom <laughs> yeah. and all sorts. So uh, maybe a Sonic the Hedgehog toilet seat. Oh, that'd be Another great. I need a new one. Yeah. <laughs> Broke it the other day. Poop faster. <laughs> so well, if you want to find out more about that, I'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we talked about the um, the first generation of these 8-bit-do controllers last year on the show after E3. Mm. And obviously, we've had E3 in the last month again. They've been there demoing some kind of retro-inspired new controllers. Yeah, so these ones are, are kind of aimed at the uh, Switch and consoles like this yeah uh, they're also the pc and uh they they kind of look a really weird mix they're like a mix of the um snes controller uh but you know the palmer violet one yeah with the original playstation controller but then you've got some analogs in there as well well this looks like to me i mean last year we did talk about the sn30 pro that was, that was kind of a recreation of the NES controller, wasn't it? But it had analog sticks on. Yeah. And this is now called the SN30 Pro Plus. To me, it reminds me of a Nintendo Switch Pro Pad. Another Pro controller, the same yeah. kind of form factor. A bit like an Xbox One kind of controller, but a bit curvier. And again, it does kind of, like you said, it borrows the colors from the, the American version of the Super Nintendo. Um, apparently, there's only one prototype they're showing off at E3, and uh, the journalist here on our PC World, actually, the article reading this off, who'd actually do some really good actually art- articles about hardware, believe it or not. Um, they didn't get a chance to feel it because it was only one prototype. But apparently, there's some interesting changes. I mean, it looks a bit more ergonomic yeah. than the original model um, because that kind of boxy NES controller, it was all right for the 80s, but I wouldn't want a game for a long period of time using that. Well, they've got plenty of controllers here. So they're actually talking about the Zero 2 as well, which yeah. is really interesting. It's a microscopic controller and it features Bluetooth and motion controls. And they're actually saying, you know, that, that this is good for the Game Boy. And the but game... it's inspired by the Game Boy, apparently the colours that you've got for it. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking maybe, do, can you get a little Bluetooth adapter or something? There might be a little hacked one for the <laughs> Game Boy or something. Well, I, th- I don't know if these are made for PC gamers, I think, mainly, but um, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure someone can make it work if not. And the next one they've got, though, the N30 Pro 2, um, looks like a GameCube controller. Yeah. Again, you know, they the SN30 Pro they did as well, that's got the rumble in there, um, USB-C charging port there too. Uh, the thing about it is they're saying that the, the problem remains from the original one when they reviewed that, that the, the, thumbsticks, the thumbsticks on it are very uncomfortable. But it is kind of the analog controller from the... GameCube controller, which I never was a big fan of anyway. I'd say they're like they're like marriage or, or kind of mashup ones here where they've got two or three systems and they've inspired it to make a new like controller out of it. It's really cool actually because it's creating something that never existed before but feels similar. Well, one thing they're kind of slating it for a little bit, which I, I actually don't agree with, is the saying that it's kind of bad they took out because the last generation of these had an internal rechargeable battery. Okay. But now it runs on double A's. Yeah. So the kind of saying is that a step back. But then the thing about it is if you've got a controller and the battery in it is, is built in, you can't take it out and it dies over time. Because rechargeable batteries have got a limited recharge. You know, yeah, yeah, and you can get the lithium ones now as well. So they last a lot longer than the alkaline. Yeah, but the fact that you can, if you can replace them, the controller can last forever then, yeah, really, can't yeah. it? And they say they will probably be coming out with a rechargeable pack 
which I think is a nicer way of doing it, having a pack that you can replace after 10 years if it's starting Definitely. to lose its charge. So I think it's cool. I mean, anything like that, especially if you're into emulators too, it's always nicer to play it on a, a controller rather than trying to, you know, play old games on a, on a modern keyboard. Never feels right, does it? <laughs> and tell us about this new Amiga game then. Yeah, so this is called Worthy, and it's uh, worthy of us talking about because it's not just one of your... You've been working on that for oh, a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not one of your PD titles. This is like a full release, and it looks awesome. Um, the graphics on it are really nicely done, actually, the pixel art, and it's released for all one megabyte Palamigas. So that's, you know, your 1200, your CD32 as well, and your Amiga 500. So they're, they've got a box CD version, which I assume is going to work straight with the CD32. Uh, they've got Bok floppy version, but you can also buy it digitally for uh, $10. Yeah. So that's really cheap. So it's a new commercial game for the Amiga. Now, the team that are behind this, um, Alex Brown actually got in touch with me uh, just before I went on holiday, actually. It's the same team that did Blocky Skies. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Blocky Skies was a good title as well. Yeah, that was in, what, 2016? I think I did a YouTube video on that, actually, if uh, memory serves me right. So I've actually got a copy of it off Alex. Um, I've been away haven't had a chance to try it yet, but hopefully I'm going to get a video recorded on that, you know, probably by the time the show comes out. So if I did, I'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com uh, in, in this week's show. But what I like about it is the fact that playing Blocky Skies, that was a commercial quality game. Yeah, that's what I mean. This is a this is not your PD uh, shovelware or anything like that. It's, it's, the physical version comes with a full-colour manual, yep. floppy disk stickers. Yeah. As well. So, you know, it's it's a proper title and it looks it looks lovely actually. It looks like one of the late Amiga platformers, I'd say. Well he sent me a bit of information about it. He goes, Yeah, there's a floppy ADF, um, an installer for the hard disk, a CD thirty two compatible ISO image, and there's also the Worthy Extras disk. There's got some extra stuff as well, like a poster images, desktop wallpaper, and it will run on, like you said, an Amiga five hundred with a megabyte of memory upwards really. Uh, thirty two colours, fifty frames a second, forty levels in there, including a really cool boss level, he says. You know, it so. reminds me a lot of kind of just these Old school, and it's like it looks quite like Putty Squad, actually. Yeah, graphically. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, but I, it's got this old school RPG feel, and it actually has quite a modern feel with it. The same with Blocky Skies had a, a modern indie game feel with it. Yeah, and that was written in pure assembly as well, so it ran really nicely. Um, so that's the thing. A lot of like you know, a lot of the modern titles for old systems are kind of written in like stuff like you know, kind of creation packages yeah. that don't run as well. Because you know. Which I admire. Anyone that wants to try and make a game in a retro system is cool. But to really get the full quality out of the hardware and get all the performance, you need to do assembly code, don't you? And really, you know, hit those chips. You do, and it's awesome when you see it done properly. (laughs) Yeah, so it's really cool. Definitely get behind this. And you can find out more in our show notes. There's a set up link in there as well. And that is, of course, the same place that you can find out everything that we've talked about this week. All the links will be in there at the same place that you can donate to the podcast if you want to help us out. Find out which events are going to be at throughout the summer too. Send us letters. Yeah, do send us letters. Keep those coming in. Show at theretrohour.com. Right, I think we've waited long enough. Let's chat to a group of guys who just have a passion for video games. And you know, I think you probably know these videos because... Everybody that searches for something on YouTube, there's always a little suggestion in the corner that says, oh, did you know gaming? (laughs) Well, now you do. Because this week's special guest, the guys from Did You Know Gaming? You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome this week's very special guests, because we have got more than one. Let's welcome Greg, Matt and Daz from Did You Know Gaming. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. 
Now, let's just um, get a bit of background on you guys first, because I'm sure, you know, a lot of our audience will be big fans of your YouTube channel um, and your website as well. I mean, let's start with you, Greg. I mean, what was kind of your uh, your background with gaming and how did you initially get into gaming? G- gaming? Well, I mean, I played it since I was a child, you know, since I was a little, little baby. Played video games because it's what everyone did. It's what my friends did anyway. Got my Sega Mega Drive when I was about four, probably, and then just never looked back, just staring at the screen ever since. <laughs> and what about you, Matt? What was your first system? Uh, the Spectrum, wow. ZX Spectrum. Yeah, my dad had one. So I started with that, and then I went on to the Master System. Um, I was always a console behind, so when everyone had a Mega Drive, I had the Master System. Then I got the Mega Drive when people had a PlayStation. and <laughs> like. But yeah. What about you, Dazem? Were you ahead of the curve or behind? Uh, I kind of was lucky because I, I had quite a lot of uh, brothers who were really into gaming. So I, from the moment I was born, I had pretty much everything around me, you know. Um, but I, I think the first console I really remember playing properly was the Amiga, which isn't really a console. It's more a computer. But yeah, yeah, same thing, same thing. What kind of games were you into on the Amiga? Everything, because uh, it was all totally legally obtained, obviously. <laughs> um, but we, I can't really think of any games in particular besides Monkey Zool. Island. Is Monkey Island and Zool are like, yeah. Yeah. Those are the two. Um, what kind of games then changed your life, guys? Like, which ones were the ones that, uh, you know, totally gripped you? Oh, we'll start with Daz. Uh, for me, uh, it's kind of a cliche now whenever anybody talks to me, but I always talk about it. It's uh, There was a PlayStation 1 game called Suikoden, although I couldn't pronounce it, so I called it Sukoden. Uh, and it was like a, a sort of JRPG about bringing 108 heroes together to overtake a, a corrupt empire and bring liberation to the people, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know why it really had such an impact on me, but I've never let go of it. And was there a game that you sunk a lot of time into then, Greg? I think the first game I really remember sinking lots of time into was probably Final Fantasy VII. was like the really big one, where I was like hun- hundreds of hours, just get everything, everyone's level 99. Also was a big fan of Diablo. We had, uh, as oh, you, man. At Daz's house, we had it on the PlayStation. And that is not, that is not a good version of the game. <laughs> <laughs> so have you guys been like friends for a long time then? You yeah. could say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, me, me and Greg have been friends since um, birth, and uh, I, I became good friends with Matt. I can't remember how old we would have been now. We're like in second school, middle school, kind of. Um, how old are we? Probably like 10, 10, 8. Yeah, 10. 10. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've, I've not been able to get rid of these guys since. <laughs> yeah. Well, were you like fans of gaming magazines, and did you watch any gaming television? Yeah, the PlayStation demo discs were our life. Like... That's they, right. You know, yeah. PlayStation magazines were so so important at the time. Um, Even actually, I remember reading quite a lot of the Nintendo official magazine because they didn't really care to stay professional, and mm. I thought it was really cool. I think you did make a good point about those um, PlayStation demo discs because they were, you know, before the days where you could just download stuff, they were like a lifeline. The only way that you could really try out new games if you couldn't. Afford oh them. yeah, I remember getting, and and they used to come with the packs of like I guess indie games like the Netrosy packs and they were just some of those games were glorious yeah well, the first time we got um terra incognita i think it was called which was a, a net Eurosy game that was uh pretty mind-blowing i think that the the guys who made it went on to make some pretty crazy stuff i think they're really popular game developers now 
Yeah, because that was a full RPG, wasn't it? And it was yeah. amazingly well done. It looked like Skies of Arcadia or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> when you look back and consider the fact that like that was indie gaming back then, and that game was very impressive considering you know everything else was kind of, here's a Tetris clone or a Puyo Puyo clone, and that was like, well... We don't really have the resources to make it, but let's make a full-blown RPG. Why not? Yeah, some weird <laughs> isometric. And I think, you know, yeah. the, the Net Eurosia as well, it was quite cool that Sony actually did give you a like a development platform. So that's quite rare. You don't, you don't really get like affordable ones, really, from manufacturers. Yeah, and it looked way cooler than the normal one. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was black, and that makes it cool. So what's the story behind... Um, did you know gaming then? How, how did you guys form that? And what, what was the need for it then? What, what, why did it come about? I, I kind of formed it with a guy called Shane who, who does it with us. He's from Sheffield, but now he lives in America. And we kind of put it together because we realized there was like a lot of... So it was very early days of social media now that I sort of think about it, which is kind of weird. Um, but there were a lot of like, you know, did you know facts for science and, and nature and all this sort of stuff. And we were like, well, video games are pretty cool. Um, we know a lot about them. Let's make images for that. And then it kind of moved to YouTube fairly quickly. I think within a year we went to YouTube. Um, and it was just immediately interesting to everybody, it seems. Uh, we were quite lucky that we had a, a group of friends who helped us kind of promote it. And then eventually I, uh, I sort of brought Greg and Matt on board because um, these guys know gaming as well as I do. And uh, it just made sense. It made it more fun. Well, looking at the videos you guys put out, I mean, you put about, you know, I think it's about three in like the last, is it, week or so? You, you put out quite a yeah. lot, haven't you? I mean, yeah. like, what's kind of your roles there? What do you all do individually? I mean, we, we hire some freelancers to help us out um, with like videos in terms of editing and, uh, and, and sort of writing and research and stuff. It, it, we kind of spread it amongst quite a lot of people. Uh, but the three of us kind of do a bit of everything, I guess. It's kind of hard to determine what we we all do besides greg who just does all of the video editing for us because um he's really good at it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i heard you did a lot of kind of uh facebook trivia groups and stuff earlier on and that kind of maybe influenced you to get into this gaming trivia stuff yeah i mean i personally sorry i don't mean to rattle on but early days of digital gaming these guys weren't so much involved um but I ran a, or still run a website called The Sprite is Resource, which I already had kind of a connection with like a market, so to speak. I don't really call it a market because everything I've done has always been like a free content kind of thing. Um, but I had a good idea of sort of how to put images together and, and graphic design of that kind of sort and how to share it. And it, it just kind of worked really well. Did you ever go to like gaming pub quizzes and stuff like that? To be honest, only recently, um, like they now have one in Norwich uh, every month, which is really fun. But not back in the day. I, there wasn't really gaming. wasn't really so much that kind of scene, you know. No, it'd be like an odd question in a pub quiz, but it would never be the center of the pub quiz kind of. Thing. Yeah, it's true. We just hosted one for the Norwich Gaming Festival, uh, which was fairly popular. I, I can't. We didn't have a precise number of people, but we did it with um, Stuart Ashen. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, that was that was amazing. Um, it, it's kind of one of those things where I sometimes forget if I go back fifteen years and think about the idea of that being a thing. It would be nuts. 
Maybe one day we'll have like a university challenge kind of uh, show on the TV. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh, yes. just, just don't invite Larry because he'll beat all of us. <laughs> <laughs> his encyclopedic knowledge. <laughs> uh, he's, honestly, there's a reason they call him Guru because it's scary. So have you guys always kind of been interested in kind of obscure video game trivia? I mean, have you kind of picked up like weird facts along the way? I mean, what about you, Greg? What was kind of your interest in that? I think it's, I'm, I'm a bit of a like... I'm a kind of trivia person, you know. I love the, I like I like watching the chase. Uh, you could say I'm a professional. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, I just yeah, just always had an interest in like because it's you get to find out more about the people who like the thought that went into the game, especially when you get to see all these like fun jokes that they make within the game, but like hidden or you know just like stashed away inside. It's just nice to see. The, like the inner workings of the how the people think when they make them you know what's kind of your favorite bit of a uh, video game trivia then anything like that that springs to mind there's a really nice one about um i think it was for virtua tennis they were planning on at wimbledon painting the logo on trained pigeons and then they were going to have them fly in front of the audience <laughs> But they couldn't. They weren't allowed to do it in the end because um, they train hawks to attack and kill pigeons at wow. the uh, at Wimbledon to stop pigeons hanging around. So it would have just been this like pigeon massacre. With, <laughs> yeah. Not the best for PR in hindsight. No, yeah. maybe not. Maybe not. So you had a pretty meteoric rise when you did get onto YouTube. I mean, you're currently onto uh, over two million subscribers on your channel. Yeah, just yeah. under two point two million. I what, think. Why do you think this is, and what do you think attracts people to your channel? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I just um, think it's it's that information that is not sort of you know with DVDs and everything you got making of, and it's kind of films. It's quite common knowledge and stuff. Whereas actually, there's a people don't realize when they play games that there's a really interesting sort of history to quite a lot of these that aren't just sort of put out. And I think just little bits of nuggets of information is always kind of I don't know, just like with the science and the nature and other videos, people are kind of always intrigued by these kind of things that they don't know. I think one of the, the main draws that we had early on, uh, which was some, somewhat intentional and also because of, uh, you know, all of us being very self-conscious at Digital Gaming, um, we got other YouTubers who are our friends to do voiceovers for us. And so as a, as a result of doing that, it kind of showed fans of those games that they could watch the video from a, a voice that they would recognize for that game within the YouTube community. So, for example, we had John Tron early on doing Banjo-Kazooie, and everybody knows John Tron for his Banjo-Kazooie coverage. And in doing that, we managed to promote our own channel, promote their channel, and moving forward, we kind of kept playing on that in a way and do self-promotion as well as promoting others. Um, in, and in a way, actually, it's, it's helped some friends of ours now because... Uh, our friend Jim or Cadicarus was was really small when we first put him on there, but we loved his videos, and he only covered sort of PlayStation One games, and so we got him to do voiceovers, and now he's got you know six hundred thousand subscribers or something, and it just works really well to do that cross promotion. Well, your videos are really well researched, and you know putting something out there, you must really have to get your facts checked um how do you get this information together and do you have like a, a group of researchers or something we have some freelance uh researchers who we we um sort of hire on uh for example liam robertson is very well known in in the games journalism scene for 
basically leaks and uh, finding unreleased games and, and stuff like that. So we try to find people who know about specific things and try to bring them on board for, for certain topics. But we also put together a website called VG Facts where people can submit trivia and they have to provide a source for it. And it's, it's all manually checked and made sure it's all kind of, it, it's all there and it's all verified. Uh, and then we can actually kind of use that as a, a good basis for finding things that we can then research some more. Yeah, exactly. And, once, yeah. once we find there, because usually they come in the form of like a short paragraph, but obviously that's not enough for sort of video content. So then we kind of dig a little deeper and you always end up stumbling across something like, they, you know, how far does the rabbit hole go into this research? Basically. And sometimes it goes very, very deep. Sometimes. <laughs> how do you find stuff though? Do you like look through old magazines? Are you on archive.org looking at the old uh, magazine archives and that kind of thing? Yeah, archive.org is actually a fantastic mm -hmm. resource. Oh, um, it's, it's a lifesaver. Yeah, because the amount of information that official companies, like the, they will put it up on their own website and then, you know, a few months later go, oh, wait, maybe we shouldn't be telling people this sort of stuff. Uh, I, in fact, that's one I always remember was Naughty Dog had something about how in one of their early Mega Drive games, they had like a naked lady at the beginning as an Easter egg. And they had it on their website, but they didn't confirm or deny it but it was totally true because why would you bring it up if it wasn't there? Even like the magazines and stuff on there as well. I mean, I love the fact that you can go on and like read old like issues of Amiga format now, you know, on your iPad and mm. swipe through them. A lot of people don't realize they're on there, but they, they must be good research material as well. Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, I've, I've constantly been reading the old Nintendo magazines in particular because there's so many games which they kind of bring up and then never mention again and they never get released. And I always found that fascinating. Which ones kind of stick in your mind then of games that were you were looking forward to or you read about that never materialized? There's one, I, I'm trying to think of it right now, in particular from a Nintendo magazine. I can't remember the name of it, but it was like Bio Ape or something. And it was like a crazy fast platformer game with up and like vertical and horizontal scrolling and all this sort of stuff. And it looked amazing, but they just never released it. And I was kind of disappointed. Um, but there's tons of unreleased games that I would love to play. We do another show called Region Lock, which is all about the sort of regional exclusive games that never made it over. Mm -hmm. There are some pretty good ones there that were, they were always supposed to get releases outside of Japan and they just never quite, they just never quite got it. Um, the uh, Yakuza Zero is a really good one, mm. which is like, it's a really decent Yakuza game, actually. I mean, I can't see why it would never move over because it's like, it's like Yakuza, but set in ancient Japan, like the Edo period or something. Uh, it wasn't Yakuza really Zero. No. no, it was something. Ishin, it's called. Ishin, yeah. Yakuza Ishin, yeah. And I thought that's a really good one. I always love as well that, you know, when games got so much hype and then they failed to live up to it. I actually got a tweet the other day of a lady who found um, a copy of Rise of the Robots, um, a cartridge, oh, and she wanted, she wanted to know how much it's worth, and I was like, well, it's fairly common. So it might have value for being a terrible game, but I mean, do, do you remember <laughs> yeah. any, any examples like that where, you know, you were all hyped and then something was awful? Uh, yeah, that never happens. Um, <laughs> yeah. no, Man, no Man's Sky, I mean. No Man's Sky, oh, yeah. The thing is, I don't think I ever trusted them from the start because it was such a tall order. I, I thought it can never be as good as they say it is. How yeah. can it work? And it doesn't. Well, there's There's been so many games where they just give an idea and I'll go, that's a great idea. 
and then the game is not that idea, you know? And that's the worst part. Mm. Has there been any systems released that you, well, unreleased that you've kind of wanted released? You know, the vapor systems that people would kind of talk about. Oh, what was it called? The, that's yeah. called the Phantom. Yeah. The Phantom game console. Yeah. Phantom. That machine would have absolutely blown everything out of the water if it existed. <laughs> I mean, there were no details about it, and uh, it was totally not a real thing, and it was probably just a, a sort of way of scamming people for money, but it would have been the best system ever. What was a Phantom meant to be then? So it was um, effectively like a steam machine before steam machines. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have had a sort of w- a Windows game marketplace on it where you had your, your controller hooked up, it hooked up to your PC, uh, it hooked up to your TV, sorry, and you could kind of download games through an online service. You could play online with your friends, all with a controller-based interface and blah, blah, blah. I mean, realistically, it's Steam big picture mode. But back in the day, Steam didn't exist, and it was just a fantastic idea for a console. Yeah, I think they made some pretty bold claims about the internet speed and the ability to download yeah, uh, download games in like seven minutes or something. And they're talking about 700 meg games. But this is back in what, early 2000s, probably? And you just think, no way. No way. Yeah, there was uh, all of their claims were completely ludicrous, uh, including, like, the specs that they had kind of given for quite late on in uh, their kind of existence as a company. They went on to do a lap board, which is like a lap, uh, a keyboard with a mouse pad on the side, um, which I don't think is actually very good. But that was like the selling point of the console as well, is that you could play your PC games from the sofa with a mouse and keyboard. And that would have been sick because I still want that. There's not really any accessible way of doing it besides like get a piece of wood and stick a keyboard on oh, it. Oh, I, I did see some really comfy things when I went to Scotland. My friend had this, uh, it was like a padded kind of system with a keyboard on it and a mouse and you could plug usbs in the back and just sit on the sofa uh, i will send yes. you a link <laughs> yeah that's the kind of stuff you want right yeah. but downloading 700k over a 56k modem i think you know back in 2000 <laughs> i remember it'd take you like half an hour to download a three minute song off napster wouldn't it <laughs> let, let alone oh, yeah exactly <laughs> not that we don't not that we used that napster ever <laughs> yeah sorry no. sorry james hetfield it wasn't me i didn't do it <laughs> but one of my favourite series that you guys do is your Complete History series. Um, they must be a pretty big job to make. I mean, I, I saw your Nintendo 64 one recently. Um, mm. What did you find interesting about the, the history of the N64? Uh, to be honest, I, I mostly find the 64DD to be interesting. The fact that they would call something the Nintendo 64 Double D is kind of impressive. <laughs> and people didn't bat an eyelid at it. Um, and, and all of these, like, I guess I find the attachments that they were thinking of making for the N64, that's the most interesting thing because they never really released any. The only thing I really remember was the Rumble Pack and the thing that came with Pokemon Stadium, which used just Pokemon Red and Blue, and that was it. You know? Oh, they had the, uh, the graphics expansion pack as well. Oh, of course, the RAM thing. But yeah, they had like the 64DD, they were going to have an internet connection thing. They, there was actually a game released on the N64 which did have an internet connection but it was only in japan and it was um it had like a, a, a phone line port on the car on the cartridge which is ridiculous but they had like tons of ideas for that system and i just wish they had sort of kept going with it to a degree 
to be honest, Nintendo has always made bold kind of ideas that never come to fruition. And that's one of their faults, I think, is they will come up with an idea and go, this is great, start putting it together and then just give up. And it's understandable with some of the stuff they've come up with. They actually have a, a quality of life thing that they're still trying to sell. They had like this idea for a device that you keep, uh, I think it's like supposed to be next to your bed and it will recognize how well you sleep and the quality of your life basically uh and it would give rewards for games and stuff it, i can't fully remember what the idea is but they are still working on it they said in their recent um sort of business gathering thing with all of their um uh investors that they're still making it and everyone kind of thought it would die do you remember like the um uh the the pulse sensor thing that they announced for the wii yeah yeah, it was kind of like they at the same time they had that and they were going to use it with other systems and ways of detecting how healthy you are. See, gaming, it, it's a fun hobby, but it's never been the healthiest. <laughs> no, like, exactly. Yeah. Sitting on your sofa eating Doritos. Yeah. I think that's something about Nintendo which I kind of appreciate is that they recognize that, though. They've always kind of tried to do things that will kind of combine both things. The Wii is clearly like a more active version of a games console. The Wii Fit is about being healthy and, and determining your weight and everything else. Uh, they had a bike for the SNES. They had a, a glucose monitor for the Game Boy Advance. I mean, it's crazy stuff that no other company, no other game uh, console developer has really done any of that, you know? They've uh, got good record of coming back as well. So like after the Virtual Boy, the N64, and then after the Wii U the switch and stuff so yeah yeah, yeah. it's always dud bomb like an absolutely amazing console a dud a amazing console dud that said i did like the wii u it's just a shame nobody else did <laughs> yeah the switch is just a better version of the wii u really it's the idea of the wii u but actually works and the i think their biggest downfall was not really pitching it as a new console it seemed like everyone thought it was an expansion for the wii like, you just, oh, you get this new cool controller. But they were like, no, 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 it's a whole console. And everyone went, oh, okay, well, I can't be asked for that. So. <laughs> I was, I was yeah, thinking of uh, strapping a Wii U to my back and having a generator and then walking around so I could <laughs> yeah. use it like a Switch. Actually, I just want to say that um, I think that the Nintendo's current move, just because obviously E3 has just happened. Uh, I don't know when this will go out, but E3 has just happened. And... Um, yeah, I quite like the direction that they've gone where they've sort of realized that they have products they can still sell for the Switch because they weren't bad games, but they're just improving them and putting them on the Switch. And I think that's fair enough, you know? Well, let's talk a bit about failed systems. Have you guys got any maybe guilty pleasures? Is it, you know, any of you fans of like the, the 3DO or the Jaggy or anything like that? I think the, the Dreamcast, though it didn't, it wasn't a truly professional flop. It wasn't what it was supposed to be i suppose yeah um i think when i look back to playing dreamcast games there were some really really good ones and it's kind of a shame that it couldn't quite compete with it. like going up against the, the playstation and stuff you just they just didn't really well ps2 they just didn't have a chance which is such a shame because like like you mentioned earlier skies of arcadia is a you know it's a brilliant rpg um i think alundra 2 turned up on there as well yeah, which is also a brilliant RPG, and you had Sega Bass Fishing, like all of these like really nice ideas and really quality games. But it's just that the Dreamcast was such a shambles, really, that it just 
didn't work out and i just feel bad for it really I feel a bit guilty every time i think about it i think we played quite a lot of dreamcast because our friend had one and i remember yeah. going to his house all the time to play dreamcast he had because it was because they kept breaking yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Side of a good console. Yeah, under, yeah. if you look under his bed, there's five Dreamcasts and then one that works. It's like, okay. It's crazy, though, because, you know, the Dreamcast now has got such an active online community and pretty much everybody in retro gaming forums talks about how, like, the Dreamcast is their favourite system and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, in hindsight, it's a bit remarkable that it, it did. Down. Yeah, it's, it's become like a cult, a cult console, if anything. I think it's mostly the reputation of Sega that kind of p- keeps people interested in it as a console. Mm. Um, people don't so much go, God, the Dreamcast was amazing. Everyone knows that it, it would break all the time and it had a lot of problems. But people love the idea of Sega making consoles because it was always the nostalgic Nintendo versus Sega, right? But now it's Sony versus Microsoft versus Nintendo. And Sony kind of feels like a latecomer just like microsoft they just kind of came out of nowhere with their new consoles and suddenly they were in the market Mm. whereas sega was a classic company they made the master system they made the game gear and the mega drive and they and well dreamcast is not so much a classic so well i suppose it is now yeah I wow. think uh, I think it's also because Sony kind of went for the technology. So when when you got the PlayStation One, it had the uh, CD-ROM, and then DVD mm. was a massive thing for PlayStation Two. And oh yeah, Dreamcast I mean, it was, was GD-ROM, was wasn't it? A DVD player, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Blu-ray was cheaper on a PS3. So. Yeah, and that's why it won, didn't it? Out of um, HD um, HD DVD and Blu-ray, it won because the PS4 or PS3 was um, far cheaper. Yeah. And well, Sony, on top of uh, that, HD DVD was also just kind of... Pure. Oh, yeah, totally. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really was Sony yeah. that kind of carried them to fruition. Yeah. And Sony make a little bit of money on every one of those discs as well, don't that, they? That must sting at Microsoft. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, <laughs> I was thinking, actually, how different... Because originally they pitched the PlayStation 2 Nintendo, I think. Yeah. So they were going to collaborate and make the PlayStation, but Nintendo kind of stepped back from it. They didn't they didn't like the way it was going. And I just think how different things would have been if you had the Nintendo PlayStation. And then, mm. you know, you wouldn't even think about Sony. I mean, they'd still be there. Their name would still be around, right? But it wouldn't be quite so synonymous with PlayStation and gaming. I think that the reason Sony kind of still has that massive grip on the market is just because the PlayStation 1 came at a time where it was revolutionary and good, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm all for the PS2, PS3, PS4, but the PS3, logically, would be the Dreamcast of Sony if it wasn't for the reputation that Sony held from the PlayStation 1. And I think as yeah. well, you know, the fact that you mentioned then that w- when we interview people on this show, it kind of seems like there was gaming before PS1, then gaming after it was like a, you know, such it's a revolution, true, yeah. wasn't it, when it came along? It's Well, I suppose it's like 3D gaming, isn't it? That's the real change. The only sort of proper 3D games before the PlayStation that people really played besides PC gaming was like, um, I don't know, just Elite. Is that Does that count? Well, there's someone like the 32X and like that Virtua Fighter and that, but it was all very polygons and stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those games, I went back and tried to play them. They are not good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's before texture mapping, really, wasn't it? I guess that's what the PS1 brought with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, God, it makes all the difference, man. 
And the soundtrack as well, you know, full CD and Wipeout. Oh, yeah. oh Wipeout, yeah. I mean, Wipeout, yeah, Castlevania Symphony of the Night. It's one of the best video game soundtracks. Still listen to that soundtrack it's because glorious, it's so good. It's glorious. It's an absolute masterpiece. So when you're kind of watching videos on YouTube and you see someone like uh, Slope's Games Room do a complete history, are you like, ah, oh, they've already done that history, damn, that's one <laughs> off the list. <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sometimes we go, oh, Guru Larry has talked about this. We can't bring it up because everyone will get angry then. Yeah. Because uh, people on YouTube tend to, if we talk about something that somebody else has mentioned briefly, they'll assume we've stolen all of our information from them. Kind of annoying. So we, we'd rather talk about things that other people have, if they have talked about it, they've not talked about it in the same depth. Or, I don't know, it's like... Or try and look at it from a different angle, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, we've talked about Sega and Nintendo. I mean, are you guys kind of divided then? Is there any rivalry? Any Sega fanboys and Nintendo fanboys in your camp? We grew up with both, me and Greg. Matt was always Sega. I was totally Sega. <laughs> but I still came around and played Nintendo. I, like, dreamed of having an N64 and stuff. But, like, you know, I don't know. They're, they also, they both had their sort of merits and things. And, it, yeah, we weren't sort of fighting over it. <laughs> I think that... You know, as we've gotten older and older and older, um, we've kind of realized that you shouldn't really treat a games company as your friend. Um, things like a console being amazing and nostalgic, they they were, but they had their faults. And that's something that I've been trying to get my head around a little bit more because, you know, you always go, God, oh, the Mega Drive was the bomb. It was, but they also completely bugged it up when they re-released it and screwed up the sound chip. So... Sega weren't always doing the best for their console. They were just trying to make the most money. Yeah. Which That's is fair enough. They all do, isn't it? Which is, yeah. I mean, it's kind of how it works. But yeah, but I, 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 yeah, I agree. It's like getting your head around the idea that they're not really making games for you necessarily. It's like, it's a, it's a huge machine that makes loads of money. And then you have to take what's good, take what's bad. There's no sense picking a side anymore. Yeah, You know, it was easier when you were a kid because it's like, my brother had a Nintendo, I had a Sega, and I was like, my Sega's way cooler than your Nintendo. What are you talking about? Mario's for kids. Sonic's cool. He's rad. <laughs> you know? Are you hoping that Sega will ever get back into the hardware market then, Matt? Uh, no, actually. <laughs> like, um, honestly, I think I actually love Sega's sort of mentality right now that they're they're pretty keen to make fun of themselves in the past and stuff. But with things like Sonic Mania, I kind of feel like they're slowly going into the right direction of maybe, I don't know, sort of coming back to some of their classics but making new versions. And I like the fact they're bringing people in um, that have done their own, made their own versions of Sonic and they've recognized that talent and brought them in and things. Um, but I kind of think it's not worth them going into the console market again. I think they should just be focusing purely on their games. They, yeah. I think that Sega is now considered one of like the top end third party publishers, right? So when they're owning that market, I, I say owning, uh, they're, they're releasing some good games. Um, I think they can stick with it and still be reputable. And if they go back into making a console, they could be as big as Nintendo again. They could be as big as Sony, but the struggle they would have to go through to reach that, you know, like in the same way as we look back and we go, oh, wouldn't it be great if they released a new Atari? 
And then they made that stupid Atari thing that got loads of money on uh, on Kickstarter. The Atari VCS. Yeah. And I think it's like, what can they offer as well that is different from Nintendo or Sony or, you know, Microsoft? Like, you look at Sony and Microsoft, there are so many similarities in their games, and Nintendo have their own kind of market. Sega really have to find something that separates them from all of them. Well, just like they did in the 90s, right? They did that, yeah. like, we are the cool ones We're for the teenagers. Yeah, mm. totally. But are they still cool and well, for teenagers? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sega are making a Sonic the Hedgehog toaster. So I'll put that out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually, to be fair, it's one thing that I, I think about when I look at the games market at the moment is that, you know, the PlayStation 4 is a PC in a box. Uh, it runs on Linux. The Xbox runs Windows. These are just computers now, whereas Nintendo has made the Switch, which is a portable device, and it runs sort of on a... A new architecture of Android, really, I think. I'm not 100% sure about that. But if Sega were to go back into the market, they couldn't go into the PlayStation Xbox market because they wouldn't have a chance. So the only thing that they could possibly do would be to make a cheaper, child, uh, sort of child-friendly, retro-like console where it would only be able to really have exclusive or old games. And that doesn't really sort of fit into the market these days. Well, like the Mega Drive Mini, you mean? Yeah, exactly. They Like, all of those games already exist. The only thing I'm sort of thinking is Sonic Mania is a new game that would likely run on low-end hardware, you know? And that is such a popular game at the moment that it's their main selling point. And that would be the only thing they could do. I mean, they can't you know, compete with the big boys. Well, talking of Sonic Mania, I mean, are, are there any other kind of classic Sega franchises you'd like to see kind of get the Sonic Mania treatment? Oh, I would love a new 2D bloody Toe Jam and Earl. That would mm. blow my mind. <laughs> Story of Thor, which one I'd like to see brought back to life. An excellent RPG. Came out around the same time as um, A Link to the Past, so it kind of flew under the radar a bit, I suppose. Because obviously can't compete with Zelda, can you? <laughs> Everyone wants a new Streets of Rage game as well, surely. Oh, yeah. oh of course. A comic Zone. I'd love a Comic Zone 2, just drawn so incredibly well. You could do it so easily with like a cell shaded style as well. Oh, uh, yeah. You're, you're on the. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. So I was wondering uh, what YouTubers you guys watch as well, and if you recommend any kind of new stuff as well for our listeners. Um, I mostly sort of watch, to be honest, this, uh, mostly non-gaming stuff. To be, it's sort of Philip DeFranco and and uh, iDubs and H three H three these these kinds of uh, commentary channels, I suppose. But in terms of gaming, Game Hut. No one seems to really know about Game Hut, and it's a guy who worked on a ton of Sega games back in the day, and he just gives out trivia that people didn't know because he hadn't told them. And I think that's really cool. It's all stuff from his computer and things from when he was making, say, Sonic 3D and Sonic R and stuff like that. And he's just finding this stuff in his house, and he's like, oh, I'll just upload this up to YouTube and things. It's really interesting things. Uh, I really like uh, Jim. Big fan of Jim Sterling. Cool. Oh, big boy! He's the best. Like, yeah, he's like the pinnacle of, for me, and at least the pinnacle of sort of video game journalism because of his sort of no nonsense attitude. He really—that's where that that sort of don't trust them necessarily aspect came from because he really points out 
that he's happy to point out the flaws as well as mm. genuinely enjoying the products they create as long as they're good, you know. Well, so, yeah. can you tell us more about the uh, region lock series that you mentioned? Because th that's really interesting, just games limited to a certain region. So uh, region lock was made by, it was originally me and Greg, and now it's obviously all three of us, but um, it was basically back in the day, we used to play fan translations of ROMs uh, because there was no way you would ever have played it because it never came out in your language. To be so, honest, half the time we didn't even know that they were trans fan translations. You'd yeah, so we would, yeah, we would just play these games and then go, oh, okay, that's why it is kind of badly written. It's because it's badly translated by some random person on the internet, which is, in, in retrospect, kudos to them. You know, they couldn't do it very well, but they still did it, and that's impressive. But the show is about games which never came out in sort of certain countries. So there's games that were exclusive to Japan or exclusive to Europe or, I mean, we've actually started to look at games that were exclusive to America. Much although, harder to find. Yeah, because it's mostly just Madden games and sort of football and all that boring stuff, which you can kind of expect what they're like. But um, Japan has some crazy stuff. They're so experimental. And just things which you wouldn't even imagine somebody coming up with. I know Ravi's actually starting to collect for the Saturn at the moment, so you've got a few uh, few surprises from Japan there, Ravi. I think. Oh yeah, and you know what? Symphony of Night on the Saturn is actually a really good version of Castlevania, um, or Nocturne in the Moonlight, as I believe it's called. Um, it's got like an additional area to the PlayStation One. It's got some extra familiars and stuff. The Saturn version is actually better than the PlayStation One, but it was only released in Japan, so it's like. Japan tends to get the better deal with a lot of games. Not always, to be fair, but most of the time. I, and uh, once people can translate them, that's when you're onto a winner. Yeah, you were mentioning those ROMs with translations. I remember playing them. Um, you couldn't get all the Fant Final Fantasies originally in like a mm. kind of series. So I remember playing fan translations of Final Fantasy, and you'd get some really weird language in there and stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when, when we were kids, I'll never forget getting Pokemon Silver with a fan translation um, because the Pokemon names were never translated at that point. So they all just had really random names. Uh, there was, I think, Feraligator was called Fertilizer. Um, <laughs> well, that's where all your base came from, didn't it? A, a bad, yeah, a yeah, bad yeah. translation. Yeah. Zero Wing, what a game. I mean, it's terrible, but what a game. There's a lot of games that did that, though, that they weren't translated properly, and at the end it'd be like, you know, congratulations or something. It was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Ghostbusters had, had like, it just said Riri. It didn't yeah, actually yeah. have an ending. <laughs> and uh, congratulations. Oh, and congratulations, yeah. Yeah, they just gave up by the end. <laughs> well, finding, you know, rare and obscure games is always exciting. I mean, obviously, we've got the traditional route of eBay, but what about you guys, then? Have you got any places that you get your games from or any, like, little maybe secret places that you go to? Uh, not really. eBay. Um, <laughs> uh, sometimes we've, we've had, in the past, we've had people offer us uh, sort of rare games and stuff, which is really nice of them. Like things which are early versions or, or sort of prototypes of games, which is absolutely amazing. The idea of people just willing to send them our way is so, so kind. Um, but realistically, we, um, we don't actually buy a ton of games at the moment, I think, we, we, because everything's digital, you know. Um, but for the, the retro collectors, 
there's a few shops around Norwich which we we pop into from time to time. Uh, there's that one on St Benedict Street. If anybody is from Norwich and they fancy taking a look, <laughs> last level game. Charity oh. shops are always a good bet. As yeah, well. you'd be surprised what you can find in charity shops. To be honest, people and just ca- ditching their whole collections and car boot sales as well. Mm. We must get unlucky around here because whenever I go to charity shops, you get like a. A PlayStation 2 copy of FIFA 2001 or something. That's all I ever find. It's because I've been first done. That's, yeah. I get it's all, all about stuff. determination. That's all it is. Just keep going back and you never know, man. You never know. Six in the morning at the car boot sale and you'll get some bargains. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so do you guys collect yourself? Uh, like, Greg, do you have a, a big wall of like your favourite systems or games? No, I'm not much of a, a collector, to be honest, as it happens. I just... Uh, I just live in the memories, you know? No, I just, um, because I tend to, if I start collecting one thing, I'll collect a million. So I just, I've tried to stop myself from doing that because I know how much I could go down that hole into just having a pile. Matt, however, has quite the collection. Speaking (laughs) of going down into the hole of collections, I have Metal Gear Solid collection to a horrible degree of getting one of every version from every country just because the artwork's slightly different or, you know, varying T-shirts. I have the Metal Gear Solid 5 light, like torch, from Amazon because there was one. They just slapped Solid Snake, a uh, big boss on the front of that. And uh, yeah, I've just got some really weird stuff. <laughs> like, but just anything Metal Gear Solid, I'll, um, I'll buy it. I, I don't know ask how much you paid for the torch. Uh, uh, well, actually, that was pretty cheap, but uh, I paid some ridiculous amounts of, for some stupid things. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think what else I've got in there. But uh, yeah, just hundreds and hundreds of games. <laughs> I, th- I think the the best thing you got was the uh, the collection of all of the games in a single box that you just oh, yeah. found on Amazon in oh. the collectibles section. Oh, totally, yeah. And I think I got it for like a fiver, and it was like some Japanese really nice case. But the thing is, I have all the games anyway. Many times, I have <laughs> so many variations of Metal Gear Solid Two. My personal favorite from your collection is the book. It's got to be. Yes, the best retelling of the plot of Metal oh Gear. yeah so i've got um worlds of power the old um se- like nez book series they did the sort of the how to read kind of books and they released metal gear before anyone cared about metal gear solid this is the you know the msx nez metal gear and um they rewrote the story with um solid snake and he's from the snake men and they're they're heading <laughs> off <laughs> into into um, battle and like yeah they've just, I can't remember what his real name was in it yeah um, I, I started to do a reading of it that I wanted to put out as a video but then I realized it's actually a terrible story <laughs> like it's, it's just really bad I'm actually looking it up because I've got to find what his name was <laughs> but yeah oh it's ridiculous so ultimately what are you going to do with it uh, are you going to in- give it to someone to inherit or, or Valhalla style be buried with all the Metal Gear Solid stuff <laughs> definitely get buried with it and continue yeah. my collection and after death <laughs> like, I just want it like forever I don't know I, I think the, I, I think at some point I'm just going to get incredibly poor and end up having to sell it all but uh, 
Yeah. Have a like, fire when that, sale. When that YouTube money runs out, that's... That's it. That's <laughs> when YouTube goes, I'll, I'll be selling my like, collection on the streets. <laughs> what, what about you, Daz? Have you got a, a big collection of consoles and games? Well, my collection has become spread across lots of places, and uh, I don't really know how much I have anymore. Um, I recently moved back to Norwich uh, after living in Peterborough, and I sort of had to get rid of quite a lot of it and spread it around a little... So I've not really been doing the whole collecting thing at the moment, but um, I've been sort of starting to consider collecting video game soundtracks on vinyl just because they're really cool. <laughs> um, and th there's sort of some good companies out there re-releasing the soundtracks in super high quality. And I just think that's the kind of thing that I really want because I'll use it, you know, but uh, I just enjoy looking at it as well. It's different to sort of game cases and, and consoles and stuff because with those I would want to have them hooked up, whereas you can just look at the vinyl covers and, and the sleeves and everything, and it's just appreciating artwork, you know? And also, if you check those older vinyl releases, there's some absolutely awful cheesy ones like the uh, Super Mario Land wrap and stuff oh, like man. that that's I, available. I still have the CD of um, uh, the Super Mario compact radio disco i think it's called <laughs> it's the oh, super mario compact disco and it's got like a song about how mario is cool like sunglasses and nice. it's so true there's songs about having to save princess daisy even though peach is singing it like loads of weird crap that is it's just the worst album you could ever find with skits in between where they talk to yoshi and stuff really really cringy but it's the best thing i found in the charity shop I think, Ravi, you've got the uh, the Tetris song, haven't you, that was in the charts? Yeah. Who, who, who did that again? Oh, man. Oh, God, uh, Dr. Spinner. <laughs> 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 Andrew Lloyd Webber, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, guys, yeah, yeah. It, it's been wonderful getting your memories and, uh, you know, you can tell just from the way you guys come across, you know, that you've been lifelong mates who just enjoy video games, which I think is what makes your channel so special. Um, what are kind of the future plans for Did You Know Gaming, then? Is there anything we should look out for? Um, we've got a few ideas. There's, there's some stuff in the pipeline, actually quite a lot in the pipeline at the moment. Um, that said, I suppose we can say that we want to try and bring Did You Know Movies up a little bit because people seem to really love it. And we're not sure how or when or anything, but it's just a thought that we have that maybe kind of trying to push it a little bit more. Um, but that's not really to do with Did You Know Gaming, that's Did You Know Movies. But it's the same, same team, you know. And what about like live events and stuff? You got any um, more plans to do those? We'll Wait, be turning up at CoxCon next month. Yeah, CoxCon. We're not on a panel or anything, but we're just going to turn there. up, hang around, be <laughs> there, be present. Yeah. I think that's the 21st of July. That sounds about right. Um, I mean, we're always trying to go for events because it's fun, you know, talking to mm. fans and everything else. Uh, it's, it's one of those things with YouTube, actually, which is... Um, we don't really get to interact with the fans like a lot of other things. And so when you go to an event and suddenly people go, oh, I really love what you do, it means a hell of a lot to us. Mm. Yeah, because yeah, you never see because... the uh, feedback, do you? Yeah, exactly. Most feedback well, is on comments. <laughs> yeah, on YouTube comments. <laughs> what was it John Oliver said? Uh, YouTube comments are the most cogent argument for never learning how to read. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Greg, Matt, Daz, it's been amazing chatting to you guys. Thank you so much for joining us. And let's keep, Thanks up, for having keep us. up the good work. Yeah, yes, yeah absolute too. pleasure, man. Yeah.